Let's take a few moments and pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much that we can gather together here today. And I thank you so much for these just few moments when we can greet one another. Thank you so much for this common bond we do have in your son, Jesus Christ. And at times, uh, even though miles separate us, um, thank you that when we come together again, there is always this unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Father, we know that all sorts of terrible and tragic things happen in this world. And we would ask for those living in and around the Fort Myers area and other areas uh, of the Atlantic that was affected by this hurricane, that, Father, you would bring them the help they need, that, that, Father, they would turn to you at this time in their life and really look to you for help. Father, we pray for Dan Lord and for Janine Reeser, uh, who uh, are suffering some things physically. And we would ask that, again, your nearness would be their good and that they would feel your love and your grace and your presence. Father, thank you so much for both the Old and the New Testament and the truth that you've revealed to us in, in these words uh, written down for our instruction, for our good. And so, Father, I would pray that you would take these words that were written so long ago um, in the book of Nehemiah and truly print them on our heart. And I'd ask this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. This may be the shortest title I've ever put up. And if you look down at the bottom, it just says 52. So I want to ask you, what comes to mind when you hear the number 52? 52 cards in a deck. Yeah, I learned that the hard way as a kid when someone asked me if I wanted to play 52 pickup, and I said yes. Well, you also think, and I think I heard someone say, there are 52 weeks in a year. Here's a little known factoid for those of you who are musicians. 52 white keys on the piano, on the piano keyboard. Go home and count them. I did. You know, if you are a sports fan, uh, there might be a jersey number 52 that you think, oh, I really like this player, they're number 52. And I don't know who would come to mind. Uh, for me, when I was younger, it was... Uh, uh, a guy who grew up in eastern Iowa, actually at Norway, played baseball for the Baltimore Orioles and some other teams, but Mike Boddicker, his number was 52. Uh, however, and obviously I'm going a certain direction, when I think of the number 52, I do think of Nehemiah 6. And the number of days it took to rebuild the wall and the gates of Jerusalem under the leadership of Nehemiah, and we're going to see that this morning. You know, if you were to go back about 140 years before Nehemiah and the people of Israel uh, get this wall built, you'd be around the city where the Babylonian army has basically 
uh, built some siege walls against it and have entered into Jerusalem, uh, again, under the uh, leadership of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And basically, they just destroy the temple. They burn it to the ground, and they shambleize the city, and they basically make the walls and the gates look like a hockey player's teeth. I mean, this is just terrible, terrible destruction. And, uh, and like I said, Nehemiah shows up about 140 years uh, after the fact that these walls have been laying in ruin and these gates are non-existent. And, you know, if you think about it, and, and again, this is, you know, 2022, you'd, you'd have to go back to the 1880s. You know, that's 140 years. And so, you know, if you went back to the 1880s, you, you would have uh, electricity and, and plumbing just coming into homes in the bigger cities. And you'd have uh, Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday shooting it out with uh, what the Clantons and the McClary's in Tombstone. And uh, the Washington Monument and the Statue of Liberty are, are uh, finished and dedicated and, and now open for people to visit. And that's you know, you can read about this timeline, but we forget, wow, 140 years, a lot can transpire in 140 years. I can't imagine what Nehemiah saw when he first went around the city. But when he does arrive in the city, the temple is up and running again. And that happened a few years before he came back, really under the leadership of Zerubbabel and the prophet Haggai. But the city walls and the gates are still in massive disrepair. And I've told you this because I truly believe that those city walls and, and the gates, they're symbolic of the uh, spiritual status of the Jewish remnant who are living in the land at the time, who have come back to the captivity. Uh, basically, the people like the walls are just beaten down. And uh, as a matter of fact, if you read Nehemiah 1, the brothers say they're in distress and disgrace. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to read the last few verses of Nehemiah chapter 6. But I, but I want to give a recap of what we, what we went through last week. Because last Sunday, in the first part of the chapter, we read about these three guys, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem. And they're kind of the leader of the pack in terms of people who are opposed to Nehemiah rebuilding this wall. They really don't want it rebuilt as it's going to reestablish the dominance of the, the Jewish people in the land. And, and so at first they, they mock the construction and, and then they, they threaten to attack the builders. So when that doesn't work, they finally just go after Nehemiah. And they attempt to get him alone to hurt him, possibly to kill him. Uh, then they print lies about him. And, and then they attempt to smear his character by getting him to, to hide in the temple, a place that he wasn't supposed to go. And what I said as I closed is this. Th those are just low-down, dirty tricks. And, and they're a reflection of the schemes of the one who Jesus calls the father of lies. And Jesus calls the devil the father of lies in John chapter 8. So these guys are following in the footsteps of the devil. And my comment was, for all of us, there are going to be people like Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem 
who are going to lie to us and about us. Uh, at times to try to frighten us and discourage us and, and defame us and get us to do what we know is wrong. There are still people out there like that today. And so when, when and if that happens to us, we really need to follow Nehemiah's lead. And we need to be very, very steadfast in God's work. We need to treasure His Word in our hearts. And we need to ask Him for strength when we feel helpless. And that's really what I want us to think about this morning. And, it, and it's a very good segue into our text for this morning because Nehemiah really is steadfast in, in his trust in the Lord. and He's very resolute in his plans to get the walls and gates of Jerusalem uh, back in place. And in just 52 days, this construction project is complete. And here's what we're told. Here's how it became finished. So the wall was completed on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence, for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Also in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son, Jehoahan, had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. Then Tobias sent letters to frighten me. So Tobias still at it. He's still out to get Nehemiah. You know, this is one of those times I, I want us to look at the last few verses of what's up here before we get to really the heart of this passage, which is in the first two verses here. Because it gives us a little bit more background about this antagonist of his named Tobiah. Uh, he's an Ammonite official. We found that out in chapter 2. And from the very beginning, he's really been vehemently opposed, very angry about this wall getting built. And, uh, and again, from the get-go, we're told he is in no way concerned about the welfare, the physical welfare or the spiritual welfare of the people living in the land at this time. Uh, he insults the work. He threatens violence. Uh, he hires this man named Shemaiah to give Nehemiah false information to try to get Nehemiah to run to the temple. In other words, he's, he's trying to sabotage Nehemiah's reputation. And so now we see that even after the wall construction is complete and the gates are back into place, Tobiah is still at it. Uh, he's sending threats, trying to frighten Nehemiah. And we see this in verse 19. He's sending letters to frighten me. Now what compounds Nehemiah's dilemma is that Tobiah is married to a Jewish woman. And his son is also married to a Jewish woman. And both these women have ties to the upper crust of the Jewish remnant, the nobility. And, and, and so the members uh, of the Jewish people, uh, the members of the nobility, uh, are really bound by oath through marriage to watch out for Tobiah. And they tell Nehemiah, and it seems like they tell him a lot, hey, here's, here's a guy who does a lot of good things for people. You know, basically, he, he's a good guy. 
And, uh, you know, we have a name for people like Tobiah. We call them puppet masters. And that's exactly what he is. He's someone who is covertly controlling others and pulls their strings to get them to do what he wants. But when he's unmasked, what does he do? He goes after the man of God, and he continues to send letters to frighten Nehemiah because he knows Nehemiah will not be his puppet, and so he continues to go after him. Now, at our Wednesday morning elders meeting, uh, Jim Anderson had us read some passages from Scripture about what we were, what were to do as believers when we feel worried or frightened or in need of God's peace in our lives. And you know, there are all sorts of things that worry us as individuals and frighten us. And, and what does for this side of the auditorium may not for this side of the auditorium. Uh, what bothers and worries me at times or frightens me doesn't even concern Sue and vice versa. Uh, when I was a kid, I remember, wow, I was uh, afraid of the dark. I was afraid of tornadoes. And I was afraid of bees and wasps. And I'm no longer afraid of the dark or tornadoes. <laughs> yeah, I still don't like bees and wasps. You know, uh, I got to tell you, there. If I think about the most recent time, there was something that worried me. And I'm guessing all of you might, might have been worried too. About 2 o'clock in the morning, Sue wakes me up and says, Joel, there's a bat in our room. <laughs> and here's this bat swooping around our bed. Now, tell the truth. Raise your hand. Would that have frightened you, worried you, bothered you? Yeah, right. Everybody's hand would have been up if you'd have been there. We did. Hey, the good news is we, we found the bat. Was it the next day or the day after? Sue found it. We trapped it, took it outside, let it go. I think that was the bat that got back in our house. <laughs> Happened again. I just say this because all sorts of things can come into our lives as believers and bother us and frighten us. And I think that's why so many times in the scriptures we're told, hey, don't be afraid. Fear not. Cast all your cares upon the one who cares for you. And, and we're told that again and again. You know, Paul says, take all of your worries to the Lord in prayer and God's peace will guard your heart. I, I want you to see a couple of passages of scripture. Uh, let's go to the next slide. This is what David writes. In Psalm 56, David says, When I'm afraid, I will trust in you. In God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can your man do to me? Which truly puts life in perspective. Back in Deuteronomy, this is God's word really to the people of Israel as they're just about ready to enter the land. And there will be a lot of people who are trying to keep them out of the land. God says to the nation of Israel, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or tremble. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Now here's the interesting thing that New Testament writers do. Sometimes they grab a passage from here and sometimes they grab a passage from here in the Old Testament and they put them together. 
And that's what the writer of Hebrews does. In Hebrews 13, he's grabbing Psalm 56, and he's grabbing Deuteronomy 31. And, he, and he's talking, actually, in the context about, don't worry about money. Be content with what you have. And then he writes, because he himself has said, I will never desert you nor forsake you, so that we confidently may say, the Lord is my helper. I won't be afraid. What will man do to me? He's taken both truths from both passages. Now, I've said this before, and it's not original with me, but it bears repeating because it's really good. Sound theology has a way of taking a load of worry off our minds. And I've got to believe Nehemiah has the sound theology that he knows what David wrote in Psalm 56, and he knows what God said to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 31. Take a look at this old Peanuts cartoon. I put this up years ago, seriously, when I first started speaking. It's Lucy and Linus, and Lucy says, boy, look at the rain. What if it floods the whole world? And Linus says, it will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that would never happen again, and the sign of the promise is the rainbow. And Lucy says, you've taken a great load off my mind. And Linus says, sound theology has a way of doing that. (laughs) Again, Nehemiah may not know Hebrews 13, but but he knows what David writes in Psalm 56. He, He knows what Moses has recorded in Deuteronomy 31. He knows that the Lord is his helper and that he was with Nehemiah when he was back in Persia before the wall was being built. He knows that the Lord was with him as the wall was being built and constructed, and he knows that the Lord will be with him in the future now that that project is all done. So even though Tobiah continues to send letters to frighten him, Nehemiah knows, the Lord is my helper. I won't be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Now, I think we need to keep that thought in mind as we go back to the text and look at the heart of this passage and what's recorded in verses 15 and 16. So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month of El Ol in 52 days. When all of our enemies heard of it and the nations surrounding us saw it, They lost their confidence, for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. And that's what I want us to think about in our final minutes together this morning. They recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. And by the way, there's that number 52. You know, it took 52 days to rebuild a wall that historians are going to guess was and let's just say two and a half miles around the city in length. Possibly about 40 feet high. And again, if you want to guess, this room is, I don't know, maybe 20 feet high. So two times the size at different points of the wall of the height of this room and and about eight, eight feet thick. Again, this is what archaeologists and historians would guess. Um, Ten very, very large gates. And they do it all in 52 days. 
I have a hard time replacing a hinge on our cupboard in that time. <laughs> you know, I think I may have put this up, but I want to put it up again because here would be like, let's say, an artist's rendering of what this city might look like. And I know it's not easy to look at uh, because it's very, very light and washed out, but you can kind of see that oh, light brownish. It looks like a key going around the city. Now, the wall is going to change over the years, and some archaeologists think that a portion of the Nehemiah wall, wall has been found. Others say, no, we don't think it has. But the reality is these walls constantly, I shouldn't say constantly, that makes it sound like every day, but they change throughout the centuries. What the wall looked like when David first moved into the city didn't look like what the wall looked like when Solomon died. And then Hezekiah expands it. And then that's what gets knocked down, and then Nehemiah rebuilds it, and then Later on, Herod is going to come in and build it even bigger. And then the Romans are going to come in and they're going to knock it all down. 52 days. 52 days. You know, even with modern day machinery, it would be an incredible feat. Um, if you read the study guide that I put out this last week for this passage, I asked in it if you considered, if you would consider the rebuilding of this wall in 52 days of miracle. Um, and I guess that would depend on how you define the word miracle. Um, you know, in everyday language, we say a miracle is something uh, that happens as kind of an improbable event. In other words, uh, that guy fell off a 20-foot ladder and he didn't hurt himself. What a miracle. Or, uh, wow, that team won the championship. That was a real miracle. And that's how we use the word. Uh, if you go back in history, one of the church theologians, Thomas Aquinas, said a miracle is an event that exceeds the productive power of nature. Okay, there's your short, concise definition from a theologian. Something that exceeds the productive power of nature. Uh, Sean shared with us on Wednesday night that uh, philosopher David Hume, now we're going from a theologian to a philosopher, said a miracle was a violation of the laws of nature. And I think that's one, that, that one has stuck with philosophers for a long time. Violation of the laws of nature. I really like what C.S. Lewis had to say about miracles. And, and I know that, hey, here's a, here's a guy that's a professor of English, but very insightful when it comes to the scriptures. Lewis said a miracle is when God does suddenly and locally, suddenly and locally, something that he has done or will do in general. And that's not a bad way to describe the miracles that occur in both the Old and the New Testament. God does something suddenly and locally, what he's done or will do in general. He went on to say that each miracle writes for us in small letters something that God has already written or will write in letters almost too large to be noticed around the whole canvas of nature. And again, if you ever have a chance to pick up his book on miracles, you're welcome to. But I, I like that. You know, no matter the miracle in the Bible, the reason is always evident. Miracles showcase the great and mighty power of God to let the observers know he is present and to trust in him. Miracles showcase this great and mighty power of God to let those present know that He's right there with them and that they're to trust in Him. 
Okay, so we may not classify the rebuilding of this wall in 52 days as a miracle if it has to do, be sudden and local. But if you look up, and, and sorry, it's not here. Actually, can we put the text back up? Sorry, I didn't make a slide for this. If you look right here, the enemies and the surrounding nations certainly noticed what was going on. And when they did, they lost their confidence for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. They saw the hand of God in this. Unfortunately, it doesn't say they didn't just lose confidence in themselves and they put it in the Lord, and I wish it would have. You know, when I, when I read this passage right here, they recognize this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. It makes me ask a question. It makes me wonder. Do others see God at work in my life, helping me? And I'll tell you what, as we read through that passage, we should ask that question. Do others see God at work in our lives, helping us? helping us walk in, in the good works that he's called us to do. And, and we know he's called us to go, do good works because we read through that when we studied the book of Ephesians, that in Christ he has prepared these good works for us beforehand that we should walk in them. See, because of Christ, our lives are able and, and meant to showcase the miraculous power of God in redemption. He takes a sinner and he makes that sinner a saint, all because of Christ Jesus. What he does is he rebuilds in us what was damaged at the fall, all the way back in Genesis 3. He's at work restoring his image and his likeness in all who will trust in him for his son. And if you think I'm making that up, you need to go read Ephesians 4 one more time, because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is going to say. The Holy Spirit is at work to restore the image of God and the likeness of God in us, all because of Christ Jesus. And you know, here's the thing. So many of us at times try to do that on our own. We want peace with God, but we want it on our terms. Or we want to walk in His commands, but we want to do it in our strength. And the fact of the matter is we can't. We're helpless. And we need God's help. We need His Savior to forgive our sins, and we need his strength to serve him. And my hope is all of us have come to that point where we recognize I am totally dependent on the grace of God for my salvation and for my sanctification. Let me move on. When, when I read this passage, I feel like Nehemiah is doing exactly what Jesus asks in Matthew 5.16, that Nehemiah is letting his light so shine before others in such a way that they see his good works and they glorify God who's in heaven. In this case, these people have lost confidence in themselves. Now, the Apostle Paul is going to say something very, very similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, but he is, he is going to give a very practical and very pertinent application to it. And so let's go to the slide, and there it is, thanks. Here it is. 
Paul writes, so then, my beloved, he's talking to believers, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says, for it's God that's actually at work in you to both will and to work for his good pleasure. And here comes the application. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. And that little word light could also be used to describe the stars up in heaven. And what it reminds me of is we're to, we're to be lights in this world, kind of like the stars, as David writes in Psalm 19, who are proclaiming the glory of God. That's exactly what we're to be like, but something at times gets in the way. Complaining. Grumbling. Arguing about things that really aren't that important. You know, if, if we truly want others to take notice of the power of the gospel of Christ to rebuild the broken down walls of our lives, then we need to do all things without complaining. Complaining is the trademark of discontent. And discontent is basically a lack of God's peace in our life. And the reason there's a lack of God's peace is because we really feel like he doesn't care about us, that he's overlooking our needs. And Jesus, time and time and again, will say that that just isn't true. Your Father in heaven knows what you need. That's why I want you to seek his kingdom first. I don't want you to worry about these things on the earth. You know, my first question was when I read verse 16, do others see God at work in our lives helping us? And that's a very important question. But there's a second question as well. And when I read what's written in verse 16, it makes me ask, why would anyone ever think they could do the Lord's work without his help? Why would anyone ever think they could accomplish what God has called them to do without his help? You know, I got I to gotta tell you, and, and again, this is just based on my anecdotal experience of, of being around churches for 40 plus years. I have a feeling that too many of us who sit in the seats and the pews of church think we can live the Christian life on our own. That's what I think, because I've seen it at times. And you know what? If that's the case, the Lord is going to show us we can't do it. And it may be in a very gut-wrenching way, like uh, with Peter on the night he denied knowing Christ. You know, God truly is, as one hymn writer put it, and this is a great, great name, the help of the helpless. By the way, I don't know if you know what hymn that's from, the help of the helpless, but it's from an old, old hymn called Abide With Me where the hymn writer calls God the help of the helpless. And again, I think that's why I chose that passage in Romans 5 this morning when we took the Lord's table, because it says, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for us. You know, just as we're helpless to save our souls from the curse of sin, so too we are helpless to serve him without his strength. We're helpless to serve him without his spirit. We're help him, helpless to serve him without his word. We're helpless to serve him without his grace. Here's a very interesting thing. 
I wonder if that's why Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the parakletos, the helper. Because that's exactly what we need in this life. As we go after this desire, God, I want to be the person you created me to be. I want to walk in those good works that you prepared for Christ, prepared for me in Christ. I like what Peter says. Sorry, I'm kind of bouncing around with a lot of different things, but you can see this common theme throughout Scripture. The Apostle Peter is going to say this, whoever serves is to do so as one who serves by the strength of God, by the strength that God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Christ Jesus, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. That's 1 Peter 4.11. You can write it down. Our service, our good works in Christ are to be done in God's strength to showcase His glory as much as any Old Testament or New Testament miracle. I just want you to see a few verses before I get to the final point, and I'm very, very close. Take a look at these, because these are more statements, more truth about God's disposition to help those who trust in Him. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Fear not, I'm with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen and help you, and I will, with, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. During our Wednesday night small group, Doug Olshocker said he was listening to a radio preacher last week or the week before who remarked that we have absolutely no clue what our day is going to be like when we get out of bed each morning. We have no clue about it. So the preacher said our opening prayer as our feet hit the ground should be just one word. Help! <laughs> I thought, he's right. We get out of bed in the morning and that word should be help. Okay, here's the takeaway. Here's my final, my final slide. Our Lord doesn't give us a task or an instruction without the promise of His help to accomplish it. That's Old Testament, that's New Testament. And so Nehemiah's adversaries recognized this work on the wall had been done with the help of God. So too, when we do God's work with His help, the watching world will see the hand of God on our lives. That should be encouraging to us. Opportunities for others to ask us, what's different about you? How'd you do that? You know, a lot of Christians think that numbers carry kind of uh, special meaning and significance in the Bible. Um, I'm not quick to say yes. I'm not going to say no. But I'll tell you what, when I think of the number three, I think of Jesus rising on the third day. And the number seven makes me think of God creating the heavens and the earth in seven days. The number 10 calls to mind both the 10 plagues and the 10 commandments. I associate the number 12 with the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. The number 40, wow, 40 days and nights of the great flood. 40 years of wandering in the desert after the exodus 40 days that jesus is in the wilderness 
fasting, being tempted. And now when I think of the number 52, I think of the number of days it took God's people with God's help to accomplish an enormous task in the face of sinister opposition. 52 days with God's help. 52. That's the number that encourages me to always rely on God's help in everything I do. I'm going to pray. I have an announcement while the musicians come up, and then we're going to sing a final song, and you're dismissed. Father, again, thank you so much for this book and this man, Nehemiah, and the godly example of leadership that he sets. Father, help us when we are worried or frightened to always turn to you and place our trust in you. And Father, cause us to remember that we need your help with everything that we do in this life. We'd ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Next Sunday, uh, actually the next two Sundays, we're going to take a break from Nehemiah. Um, we're done with the wall part, now we're going to get on to the people part, in the last part of Nehemiah. And, and this next Sunday, uh, there's going to be two of us up here. Uh, Bob Landis and I are going to share this pulpit, and uh, I asked Bob if he'd be willing to uh, share some things with you. Uh, from the time he was just a little kid to the 2022. Yeah, I won't go into details, but <laughs> by the way, LaVon, happy birthday a few days late. So that's next Sunday. The following Sunday, John Rodriguez will be speaking, but we have a baptism. And so if it's been on your heart that it's time to be baptized, you can see me, you can see Sean Lillis, John Rodriguez, someone up front. We'll make sure you're part of that day. Thanks. That was good. Thanks.